So I want to go ahead and invite you to grab your swords of the Spirit and turn to Psalm 132. This is one of the songs of ascent. Last week we meditated on another one of these songs. There are 15 of them in the Psalter, Psalms 120 through 134. Last week we took a look at Psalm 121, the first two verses of which say, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Well, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so in that uh, psalm, we were assured that God's care for us is sleepless, complete, and unending. It goes on forever and ever. The Lord is your keeper. And that's possible because our Lord is eternal. And that's why we also found the greatest reassurance of all in the words of Christ himself in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. These were Christ's last words to us before he ascended into heaven. And he said, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so this week we're going to return to our pilgrimage to Jerusalem with that very thought on our hearts. How God's care for us is perfect and how that care for us was fulfilled perfectly in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Messiah. And so uh, today is Palm Sunday. This is the day that we celebrate our Lord's entry into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This is the prelude for the terrible beauty of the cross and also the awesome power of the resurrection. And so let's take a minute before we read Psalm 132 and let's just put ourselves there that day when Jesus enters the holy city. We're among thousands of fellow pilgrims and many of us are gathered like we are at the base of the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount rises above, just towers above us. And the place is teeming with Roman soldiers. And this has been the case for at least 80 years. And as a Jew who believes that only God should rule over you, this is a fact that really gets under your skin. Now Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor of the Jews, of Judea. And so by default you despise him. And you know what? The feeling's mutual. He doesn't like you either. And he uses his authority to intimidate you however he can. He is a pleasure-loving, corrupt, pagan man who has shed the blood of many a Jew for the sake of security and of keeping order. And that's exactly what he's doing here today in Jerusalem. Normally, he's far away in another town. But today, uh, he has stepped up the military presence because he wants to make sure that you and your fellow Jews behave yourselves. That's what he's there to do. But even with all of that and that Roman presence, there's an excitement in the air for you as a Jew because you've heard about this man from Nazareth. You've heard so much about him, this Jesus, and he's, he's really turning out to be something after all. Some people from Bethany keep talking about how he raised a man from the dead. You've also heard about how Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a couple of fish and five barley loaves of bread. How in the world did he do that? And the people were saying then, and you hear it repeated some now, that this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. That day when he fed the 5,000, there were even some political activists there. And these were people who wanted to force Jesus into becoming the king right then and there. They wanted to set the revolutionary wheels against the Romans into motion. They wanted to get this thing rolling. But Jesus had apparently slipped away and the moment was gone. But you know what? Maybe Jesus is the one who's finally going to get rid of all these Roman legions after all. And so... In a little while, you're more than a little excited as you watch Jesus pass by on his little donkey. And your cloak is among the many that, you, that have been laid out in the road before him in his honor, and you even wave a palm branch for him too. 
You join the loud chorus, maybe a little off-key, from Psalm 118. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We sang about that just a few minutes ago. You see, you want Jesus to rescue you. You want Jesus to save you and the Jewish people from Roman power. You want Jesus to reestablish, finally, an independent, sovereign, and eternal Jewish kingdom once and for all. And one of the reasons you think that Jesus might be the one to do that is because in God's word, he's promised over and over to you a Messiah. In fact, you sang about this Messiah on your pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You've sung about him in this other song of ascents, Psalm 132. And so let's go ahead and keep our Bibles open and see what Psalm 132 has to say. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You in the ark of your might. Let your priest be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my dwelling place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The word of the Lord. As we have said, our commemoration today of Palm Sunday is indeed a celebration because Jesus did, after all, become the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In fact, he has been the King and King of Kings and Lord and Lords all along, right? But even as we say that, even as we celebrate the fact that the Lord is King, that Christ, the Messiah, is King, we're also painfully aware of the Jews' drastic underestimation of who Jesus was. You see, there wasn't a single Jew who fully understood it. Jesus' disciples, they didn't even see him as anything more than really a great earthly leader who worked a bunch of really cool miracles. The Jewish leaders, well, they thought Jesus was a blasphemer. And that's why they're going to arrange in just a few days to have Jesus crucified. Most of the people, most of the Jews, well, they just want Jesus to get rid of the Romans so they can live out from under their thumb of oppression. But you know, we can only be but so hard on these Jews, right? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we've really got to admit that if we were there that day, if we had been on that road into Jerusalem, we would have underestimated Jesus too. And that's because we could not have imagined what his being the true Messiah really meant. And that's because we, not only do we need the cross and the resurrection to get this, but we also need saving faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's the only way that we can know with certainty who Jesus is, is if our faith is in Christ. But you know, even then, 
even as believers who follow Christ and who love him, we can easily morph our Lord into somebody he is not. And this happens when, just like the Jews of Jesus' day, we start to understand our Bibles through our experiences rather than our experiences through the Bible. You see, the Jews had become extremely focused on the political situation around them. Sounds an awful lot like the climate of today, doesn't it? The Jews, they just really couldn't see any other solution because they were so focused on this problem of the Romans. They couldn't see any other solution than for God to relieve them from Roman oppression. And they forgot something extremely important. They forgot that they needed salvation from sin too. And we can do the same thing today. You know, there's a lot of ways we can do that. One of the more popular ways is that we can underestimate Jesus by making him just a teacher and really nothing more. But there's another even greater danger, at least for the believer. And that is that we can underestimate Jesus by seeing him in exactly the same way the Jews did that day. We can diminish Christ into a political Messiah. But as we're going to see today, Christ is a whole lot more than that, isn't he? And so let's examine Psalm 132 today in light of Palm Sunday. Let's find out who the Messiah really is. The big idea of Psalm 132, of course, is what we all know to be true, that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah. And really, as we say that, we've got to acknowledge that Psalm 132 has always meant that even before Christ came in the flesh because, of course, God's plan was God's Son all along, right? It was God's plan since before the foundation of the world. Christ has always been the Messiah. But the subhead, the subheadline that goes along with this is that just as the Jews were waiting for their Savior, so we are waiting for our Savior. That is, we're waiting for him to come again. We've seen him come once, but he's going to come again. And so here's the second part of the big idea of Psalm 132. It is the second coming of Jesus Christ that's going to vindicate our hope in him. It absolutely will. But here's our take-home lesson. Our take-home lesson is that we've got to ensure that the Messiah we believe in is the same one we find in our Bibles. You see, we've got to ask ourselves the question, who is our Messiah? And so let's go ahead and dig in. This psalm is is a prayer, and it's also a promise from God. We see the prayer in the first part of this psalm in verses 1 through 10. And the psalmist is, is praying that in the, in the name of the faithful that, the, that, that God would remember David's faithfulness. And then in the second part of the psalm, we see God's response to the prayer. We see his promise in verses 11 through 18. We see that God promises never to allow his kingdom to fail and that his anointed one, his Messiah, will ultimately reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen, right? And so, let's look at this prayer first in the first ten verses of the psalm. As the psalm begins in verse 1, we see the psalmist appeal to God on the basis of David's faithfulness. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. In other words, uh, the the psalmist is praying that God will credit to David's account all of his efforts to serve God. And so then, just by default, as descendants of that kingdom, he's praying that the effort on David's part would bring favor to the Jewish people, that they would be seen with favor in God's eyes. It was only natural for them to pray like this. What God had promised to David, he promises to his people. 
And what did he promise? He promised, uh, namely, as he says, as God declares to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so the prayer in Psalm 132 is that everybody in God's kingdom will be blessed by God's faithfulness to his promise. But of course, they needed to participate in this promise as well. There were hardships along the way for David and for the people of God. Besides wars to be fought and and won and the challenges to David's throne, uh, David found himself completely devoted to the cause of providing a suitable home for God and the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, you remember, is that, that beautiful box that they made to contain God's commandments to them. These were commandments that God had written with his own finger, as it were, on these stone tablets. And that's why in verse 2 and in verse 5, it's called the Mighty One of Jacob. And so in 2 Samuel 7, God makes his famous promise to David that a home for the ark and God's presence, uh, and for God's presence, this, this home, this dwelling place would indeed be built. But instead of David building it, it would be David's son Solomon who would do that. And yet David is faithful, isn't he? He sets his mind to making everything absolutely ready for his son's huge building project. He gets everything squared away. These are the hardships that verses 2 through 5 are about. They're a poetic expression of David's heart to accomplish God's will. And so David was tireless in his efforts. And just listen to this. By the time of his death, look at all that he had done to make everything ready. He had subdued all of the enemies in the surrounding area. He'd organized the Levites and the priests and the musicians and the gatekeepers, all the nation's officials, the military, and all the leaders of the tribes were set into place. David was a really busy guy. You see, in other words, David had been faithful to bring about all of the peace and security and prosperity and well-being that was absolutely necessary for Solomon to be able to concentrate on this huge task that God had set before him. He needed to do this without interruption and distraction. And so David took care of all that stuff for him. Now, of course, we need to remember something here as we talk about the dwelling place of God. We need to remember that, that David and the other Jews did not believe that God needed a roof over his heads. That we all are aware of the fact that God is spirit, that he doesn't have a body, he, his home is in heaven. And so the way that they understood the dwelling place for God, whether it was in a tent or in an extravagant uh, kind of temple, was to understand that this was where God chooses to make himself known. You see, God has chosen this. This is where God has chosen for God's people to appear before him and to meet with him and hear from him and find strength for their lives in the knowledge of God's presence. In other words, this was the place where the people would come to be in the presence of God and be ministered to. And isn't that why we gather as a church? I mean, it isn't as if God isn't already with you when you're at home or at the grocery store or wherever you happen to be. But it's within committed Christian fellowship that God especially makes himself known, isn't it? It's in that conversation with the fellow believer. It's in those beautiful songs that we just sang. It's in the context of this fellowship that God makes himself known in a special way. This is where we hear from him and he ministers to us. And he does that in a way that can't happen perhaps in other places, in another context. Well, as we think about the ark, neither did the Jews believe that the ark had some kind of special power all all on its own. It was a sacred object because God said it was. That's it. God said it was a sacred object. He said it was something that they needed to to revere as a symbol of his presence. 
And so that's exactly what the ark was. It was a symbol of God's power and presence. And this was a power, by the way, that the unsuspecting Philistines who stole the ark in 1 Samuel, this is a power they experienced in a uh, powerful way, to be redundant. You see, when they stole the ark, God sent sickness among them. He sent tumors and made them get sick, and a lot of them died. What God was doing was providing the proper motivation for them to give the ark back to the Jews, and that's exactly what they did. And so in verses 6 and 7 of our psalm, this is the time that the psalmist is reliving. There's never a report of the ark having been an Ephrathah, uh, but, but this is the Bethlehem region, but, but this apparently is where at least some of the Jews heard about its whereabouts, and so they go where it is, and where it is is, is near the fields of Jaar, and this is where they retrieve the ark from the Philistines. It's also, uh, it also became the ark's home for 20 years. Uh, the fields of Jaar is the poetic name for Cariath Jerim, which you'll read about in 1 Samuel 7, where it records this place as the haven for, ark, for the ark uh, before it gets moved finally to Jerusalem. And so verse 7 about worship. This is, a, this is a reenactment of that first sweet moment when the God's people come back into his presence. They're, they're back in his presence. This is when the ark is first recovered from the Philistines, and it's a special moment. And this is why the Jews, even on their way to Jerusalem, want to relive this moment. Have you, have you ever been away from God for a while, or maybe the church? You've been away from God's presence. You know something of what they must have felt. You know, we've got several families in our church right now with young kids. They've not been able to come to church because they've been sick. And so they've been missing church. But when you've gone, been gone for a while like that and you come back to the fellowship that you yearn to be in, it's a beautiful experience. There's great joy in finally being back in the fellowship. It's refreshing. The music just lifts your soul. And the reading of God's Word is like a balm to your spirit. And even if the sermon is about something you haven't even thought about, it brings healing and hope to you. Just being in the presence of fellow believers and in the presence of God in this way is refreshing brings life to us. Well, that's how it must have been like for the Jews who have gathered to be in God's presence with the ark for the first time after it had been stolen. Everything's as it should be. Everything is restored. Everything is exactly as God says it should be. And so as we re-experience Palm Sunday or the events of Christmas as we do. Uh, this is what the singers of Psalm 132 re-experience. They, they want to re-experience this beautiful scene of worship. And then in verses 8 through 10, they also recall the hope that had filled the hearts of the Jews back then. And what filled their hearts with hope was God's promise that he was going to act powerfully on behalf of the nation. That's what verse 8 is about. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. This is a call for God to act and to, to keep his promises. But as we read about God going to his resting place, we need to recognize that God never needs to rest, does he? This is actually a prayer that God's plan to reside in Jerusalem will occur. This is about his dwelling place where the people can come and be in God's presence. And then in verse 9, the psalmist prays, let your priest be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. The priest, uh, they, they need to pray for the priest to be godly through and through. They don't want the priest to be all in their fine arraignment that God had ordered for them to wear and it just be an outside thing. They want their priests to be holy. And the result of the holiness of the priests, of the righteousness of the priests, 
is that then the saints, those who love God, would be able to shout for joy. You know, if you've ever been in a church where the leadership was not godly, you know how difficult it is to be joyful, even as a devout follower of Christ, because what you see grieves you. It grieves you. Leslie and I have experienced this a long time ago in another church, and we actually ended up leaving that church because the pastor was blatantly unfaithful to the Word of God. You see, if the pastors aren't faithfully preaching the Word or if there's misconduct on the elder board, even true believers can't worship with godly abandon, can they? But you know, when pastors and elders are faithful, That's when there's real joy. That's when the Holy Spirit begins to move in us and minister to us. When the church leaders are faithful to God, that's when we all can know the presence of God because righteousness leads to joy for everybody. Joy is the direct result of righteousness. Happens every time. And so then verse 10 is just a simple reiteration of verse 1. This is the prayer that God is going to remember David's faithfulness and remember his promises to him. And so that's the prayer that we see in the first 10 verses. So now let's take a look at God's promise. And this is where it gets really interesting. In verses 11, 8, 11 through 18, we see that God promises never to allow His kingdom to fail and that His anointed one is going to ultimately reign forever. Now the first part of the psalm has asked God to remember God's faithfulness and to act on His promise that David's throne and His kingdom will be made sure forever. And so in verses 11 through 12, God says, you know what, you betcha I'm going to keep that promise. You betcha. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. You see, when God makes a promise, it's for keeps. All things are possible with God, right? Yet Hebrews 6 reminds us that there is one thing that is impossible for God, and that is for him to go against his holy character and nature. He cannot lie. All things are possible with God in that he can and will do anything that's in harmony with his holy character and nature. Even things that that blow our minds. Even things that seem impossible to us. But it is impossible for God to violate His own holiness. He cannot tell a lie. To make a promise and not keep it is impossible for God. Because that's not part of His nature. And so what is God's promise to David? What of the sons of your body I will set on your throne? Now, of course, there are some conditions that the kings after David have got to meet. Verse 12 spells that out. David's line of kings are going to continue as long as they keep the covenant. This was part of Solomon's prayer for the dedication of the temple that he had just built in 2 Chronicles 6.16. He's praying to God, and he says, and this is going to sound familiar, Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him. There it is. There it is again. Saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, of course, we know the tragic truth, right? We know our Old Testament history. We know that hardly any of Israel's kings did walk in God's law. Scripture records only a handful who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, right? But what's the refrain we read over and over and over again? The refrain that sounds like our own lives at times. We read that the kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so that's why the kingdoms of Israel and Judah God's not going to bless sin. And so he sends those kingdoms into exile. And even after the exile, the kingdom is not restored. But our psalm says something remarkable. It says that God, instead of doing away with his part of the promise, is going to keep it. And here is where we really start to see and recognize the true Messiah. 
In verse 13, the Lord has chosen Zion, not because there's anything special about this particular hill in Jerusalem. There are mountains around Jerusalem that are far more impressive. What makes Zion special is, again, that God has chosen to dwell there. That's it. God is what makes a place holy. And he has chosen this spot to be the place where he makes himself known. This is the place where people will come and worship him. And it's even the spot that the Messiah is going to return to someday. Someday that we have not seen yet. But for now, for now, today, until that very end when he does come back, it's going to be occupied by the enemies of God. That's what the Bible says. Daniel prophesies that there are going to be wars until the end. But Christ is coming back. He is coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming to Jerusalem. Zechariah 2, verses 10 and through 12. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. That's Jerusalem. For behold, I... Come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and listen to this, and will again choose Jerusalem. And so in verse 14 of our song, Jerusalem is going to be God's dwelling place forever and ever. This is the place where Christ is spending his last days. We have witnessed him ride by on his donkey. It is the place where in a few days he's going to die. And then in some days afterwards, three days afterwards, he's going to rise again. He's going to be the victor over death and of sin. And then he ascended into heaven and Jerusalem is going to be where he's going to return to begin that very same eternal kingdom that God has been promising to David all along. And when that happens, there are going to be some remarkable events. Try to get your your heart and your mind around this, what it says in Revelation 21. The holy city will come down out of heaven. That's Jerusalem. It's going to come down out of heaven from God, and the thrones of God and the Lamb will be in it. Wow. I can't wait to see that. But you know, it's also there that God will also restore the rest that our sin has just annihilated. Psalm 95, 11 says, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You see, our sin broke our relationship with God. We are no longer at peace with God. And without a Savior, sin keeps us out of God's resting place. It keeps us out of God's dwelling place. We can't be in His presence. That's why there is the veil in the temple. And that's why Christ, when He died, why that veil was ripped in two. Because now we have access to the Father. But you see, we need that Messiah in Christ to restore our ability to be in God's presence. We can't have it any other way. You see, we don't need a political power. What we need is peace with God forever. That's what true rest is. True rest isn't a long vacation or even a long weekend. True rest is perfect fellowship with God forever. And that's exactly what the Messiah restores. This is what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2.17. Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. He preached peace. He preached that restored relationship with God the Father Almighty. And so in verse, six, uh, verse 15, from that standpoint of peace, from the standpoint of a restored relationship with us, God promises that he's never going to neglect his people. 
In the words of the psalm, food is going to be abundant and there's going to be bread even for the poor. But these aren't just materialistically poor people. They're the spiritually poor. That's you and me, isn't it? We are spiritually poor. And so what God is saying is that whatever we need for life, God's going to give us if we have faith in his Messiah. And what is it that we need? Well, we need food, right? That's what the psalm says. Well, so let's remember what Jesus said in John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. There's the power of the cross. There's the life that he gives us in forgiving us of our sins. Are you, are you starting to see just how terrible the Jews' underestimation of the Messiah is? And do you feel yourself maybe with a pang of conviction that maybe you've been underestimating him too? Hmm. Well, in verse 16, God answers the prayer that we saw in verse 9 for the priests and the saints. Only here we see that God's going to clothe the priest with the result of righteousness, and that is salvation. You see, salvation comes from righteousness. This is what our Messiah does. His righteousness saves us. His righteousness is imputed to us, and he saves us. John 3.16, we've all got it memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so finally, in the last two verses, we're reassured that God is going to keep his covenant with David. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now, we know a lot of people in Scripture uh, who are anointed or set for special service to God. We know that. There are many people uh, that the Bible speaks of who are anointed from kings to prophets and others. But the Bible also uses this terminology for our Messiah. In fact, the Hebrew word Masach in verse 17 is translated anointed one. That's what uh, Messiah means is anointed one. It's where we get our word for Messiah. And in fact, the way that Christ begins his ministry is by reading from Isaiah in the synagogue. You remember this? He goes to the synagogue and he picks up the scrolls and he turns to Isaiah 61.1 and he reads this and then declares that he's the fulfillment of this prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and so on. And so Christ is the anointed one. He's the Messiah with all capital letters. And then in verse 17, the horn is a symbol of God's power that he gives to the Messiah. The lamp is a symbol that not only will the Messiah be the light or guide to God's people, Jesus is the light of the world, right? But this is also a sign that the reign of this king of the Messiah King, this reign is never going to end. And so we can think about this really as the eternal flame of God's glory. In other words, our Lord is going to have eternal and absolute power. And that's why his enemies will be clothed with shame. That is, they're going to be completely destroyed to their everlasting shame. You remember the lesson of Psalm 1. The way of the wicked will what? Perish. The way of the wicked will perish when Christ comes again. 
Only when Christ comes again, instead of riding on a donkey, He's going to come riding in on a white horse and be leading the armies of heaven. And from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so... The Lord's crown will shine. It will flourish because the Lord has all of the power and authority of God himself because he is God. He is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so this crown is the symbol of kingship in all of its glory and joy and perfection. This is the absolute victorious king who is going to reign forever and ever and ever. Hmm. And so that's the prayer and the promise of Psalm 132. The prayer is that God will keep his promise to David and the promise from God is that he will keep that promise. Absolutely he will. God's already kept part of that promise in sending us the Messiah. So we know that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah. And we also know that when he comes again, that's going to vindicate our hope in him like nothing else ever will. It's going to prove to the whole world that he is who he says he is. But I think it behooves us on this Palm Sunday to do just a little bit of soul searching. As in our mind's eyes, we watch Jesus go by on his little donkey through a crowd of people who are terribly underestimating who he was. You see, we've got to ask ourselves if we're doing the same thing. Are we underestimating Jesus Christ? Are we diminishing the Messiah? And so we ask the question, who is our Messiah? Well, if Jesus is just a teacher to you and nothing more, well, you've got a lot of company. There's a lot of people who believe that, but to their own peril. You see, you've got to contend with something. You've got to contend with what Scripture says about him. And you've also got to contend with the fact that one day he will wield the fury of the wrath of God and he will wield that fury as your judge. But as you think about that, I also hope you think about the peace and the rest that is guaranteed to come your way if and when you receive Christ as your Savior and your Lord. You see, when we receive him by faith, God reconciles us to the living God and that reconciliation never ends. It's part of the care that God showed us in Psalm 121, that never ends, that's complete and sleepless. Our Lord never falls asleep. He is complete in his salvation. He doesn't go part way. And he is eternal. And so he can give us eternal life, right? Well, but then there's this question, other question about who your Messiah might be? Is Jesus your political Messiah? When you think about Jesus, do you envision him wearing a red, white, and blue cloak instead of the plain sackcloth of a humble servant or as Revelation 19 describes, a robe that has been dipped in blood? You see, I think really one of the greatest dangers to an American Christian today is not that ungodly people are going to have their way in our society. The gravest danger for us as Christians in America isn't even the loss of our freedoms. I think the biggest danger we face today as American Christians is to diminish our Messiah, to think that he's less than he really is, our danger is that we can become so focused just like the Jews were on the situation around us that we really forget what Christ came for 
And when that happens to us, we start to see an altogether different Messiah than the one we just read about in our Bibles. You know, I think we all share this sentiment. I know I do. We want very badly for our country to wake up and be godly, right? That's a beautiful and wonderful thing for us to pray for. But you know, I'm not really sure that that's God's will. Maybe God has us here to be his witnesses in a dry and dusty land, to be his light in the darkness. Because you see, the, the trouble is in, in our zeal against ungodliness, we can make that same mistake the Jews were making. And we for, can forget that we need salvation too. The truth is, the painful truth is, is that we're no better than the most evil person that we can think of. Because you know what? Without Christ, we're all doomed, just like they are. You see, when we forget that, when we, we, that's when we forget about the fact that Christ came into Jerusalem humble and mounted on a donkey. He isn't riding the white horse yet. That comes when he comes again. We forget that to be, to be Christians, we need to be humble ourselves. And that's when we end up trying to use our faith as a weapon instead of a means of grace, the means of grace, the same grace that Christ demonstrated to us on the cross. What a travesty when we do that, when we forget that Christ was whipped and scourged for us and the flesh of his back just was ripped to shreds and he was nailed to that cross to die for our sins. We can forget that the Father in heaven turned his back on him and he poured out all of his wrath on our Messiah and our Messiah hung there in our place what happens when we forget all of those things is that we forget that the king of king reigns as paul says in ephesians 121 he reigns far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come that's the hope of the resurrection, isn't it? There it is. And so Jesus isn't a politician, and he doesn't want us to make him one either. Jesus isn't running for president. He's not trying to be the prime minister of some European power. He doesn't want to be the perpetual ruler of some country somewhere. And the reason is, is because he's above all of that. He rules over it. He is already the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He doesn't need any of that. The whole world is already subject to him. And that's the best news that we could ever hear. But in our religious zeal, and that's what it turns into, our religious zeal. In all of that, we can forget that there's not going to be a U.S. flag flying over New Jerusalem. It ain't going to happen. And we can forget that we're not going to get to New Jerusalem based on which side of the aisle we prefer. You see, we've got to be careful not to send the message that to believe in Jesus means an allegiance to a particular political ideology. The last I checked, it's faith alone in Christ alone, right? Amen. All right. And so the first question that you and I need to ask ourselves is, who is our Messiah? Is he the anointed one of Psalm 132? Is he the fulfillment of God's promise to David? Is he really? And is your understanding of who he is shaped by the word of God and not by the threats that you perceive around you? 
See, that's exactly what the Jews were doing. But knowing who Christ really is ought to change how we interact with this world. You see, if we're on pins and needles about the next election like our lives depend on it, you know what we're doing? We're just acting like unbelievers. We're acting like people who have never known Christ. We're acting like people who don't know grace. We're acting like people who don't understand that the blood of Christ was poured out for our sins. We've got the hope of Christ. And that means that instead of, of living in fear, when we live for Christ, when we live in Him, when we have that hope, we become living testimonies of how God has restored our relationship with God. How Christ has done that. How Christ has restored us to Himself and restored us to the living God. And that's when we, we understand that because of Him, there's going to be absolutely nothing in the way between us and God forever and ever and ever. It's going to be just as it was for Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned. Their relationship with God was perfect and ours is going to be perfect. Listen to Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't that the only thing that matters in all of eternity? Is that we be restored to God through Christ. We need a perfect relationship with God to be saved. And the only way to have that is through Christ. And when we receive him by faith, we're going to live in eternity in a place where there is no sin. We're going to be free from sin and we're going to be free from this world. We're going to be forever free from politics because there's not going to be any such thing in heaven because Christ is in charge. <laughs> a little later on in Revelation 21 and verse 23, it also says this, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And so you see, our Messiah is a whole lot more than we can ever imagine. I can hardly wait to see him face to face. I can hardly wait to gaze upon all of these wonderful things. But you know, in the meantime, we've got the hope of the cross, don't we? We have forgiveness of sins if our faith is in Christ. And we also have the hope of the resurrection. And that hope is what makes the second coming a real promise, a guarantee that it's going to happen. And you know what that gives us? That gives us eternity to enjoy a perfect, restored relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, you have sent your Messiah Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord. And by faith in Him, you have saved us. By faith in Him, you have given us the hope of eternal life. By faith in Him, you have given us eternity. And so, Father, we thank you for the cross on which He died. We thank you, Lord, for the blood that He shed for us so that we could be forgiven. We thank you, Lord, for his resurrection that gives us eternal hope. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.